Well, this morning, um, obviously, we're nearly to the end of Hebrews, so we're going to focus on verses 20 and 21 today. Next week, Lord willing, the plan will be to look at the, the final verses up through verse 25 and finish out our study in Hebrews. And then, uh, like I mentioned last time, we'll be jumping to uh, uh, begin a series in 1 Samuel. So that's the trajectory of things. But this week, it's verse 20 and verse 21, uh, where we have this uh, benediction or this prayer uh, that the preacher offers for his audience. And uh, while the prayer here is just that, it's a request to God on behalf of these believers, at the same time we know, uh, just from the ministry of, of, of the apostles as we read the letters, we know this very much from Jesus' own ministry as He prays, we know that prayers in Scripture uh, not only have this, this petitional function and that they're calling to God for help, but prayers in Scripture also exist for our instruction. And certainly that instructional component is present here as we think about the final prayer, this benediction uh, in the book of Hebrews. And, and so we'll, we'll set the context for our study in this way, not, not only thinking about the prayerful nature of what's here, but also the instructional nature of what we might learn from this truth. So, so we'll think about it on these, along these lines. Um, when it comes to instruction or, or teaching, whether it's in the classroom or, or instruction around a precise skill or sport, whatever it might be, when it comes to teaching, one of the most basic instructional strategies is what's referred to, at least in the world of education, as whole part, whole practice. Whole part, whole practice. So, uh, for example, if you're learning how to write a persuasive paper in your English class, uh, the teacher will, will first show you what a complete persuasive essay looks like. So they'll, they'll take you through all the parts. You see the introduction where you form your thesis and then how the argument develops and then how you conclude by restating your, your, your thesis and those kinds of things again. The teacher will start by walking through the whole persuasive essay and, and give you a picture of how it looks. Uh, maybe they'll, they'll do that fairly quickly, but they'll bring you through the whole. And then after that, uh, they'll, they'll part it out from there. So maybe the teacher will put you in groups of two or three and, and you start to work out the pieces that, for example, make up a good introduction. And then you move to work out the, the pieces that make up a good argument in the body of the paper. And then the pieces that make a good conclusion. And then when all that is done, uh, working things out in manageable parts, you come back and you write the whole paper. You put the whole thing back together again. Uh, so this is whole part whole. Uh, the students are, are introduced to the whole thing, then they work out the whole thing in manageable parts, and then you come back and put it all together. And as we get to the end of Hebrews and this final prayer, as we uh, get here, especially reflecting on the ground that we've covered in our study of Hebrews over this length of time, there's a sense in which the preacher has employed this whole part, whole method of instruction. Um, because back at the beginning of Hebrews, in those first few verses, you remember, he, he really gave his readers the whole thing, in a sense. Uh, right there at the begin of, beginning of Hebrews, where he says, Long ago, God spoke to our ancestors by the prophets at different times and in different ways. And then in these last days, he's spoken to us in the Son. And he's told us that God has appointed the Son, the heir of all things. Uh, the Son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact expression of his nature. He sustains all things by his powerful word. And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So, so, so we have Hebrews beginning that way with this extraordinarily big picture view of the superiority of Jesus. He's, he's the one who's the final revelation of God. He's in the highest position of all. The universe was made through him. He's the one who finally obtained salvation from our sins. He affected that. That's the whole thing about Jesus the preacher's given us there in just the first few verses of Hebrews chapter 1. 
And then from there, for all the rest of Hebrews, what does the preacher do? But work out all the parts that highlight the superiority of Christ. We've got the whole thing about Jesus. He's the supreme, superior one, effector of all salvation promises. And then from there, the preacher parts it out, doesn't he? How do we know Jesus is the one who affects all salvation promises? Well, Jesus is, is better than angels who God used uniquely in old covenant ministry to communicate his truth. Jesus is better than Moses. Jesus' rest is a better rest than the promised land of Canaan. Jesus is the better priest. Jesus is the better sacrifice. Jesus secures a better covenant. Je- Jesus' purification of God's people is, is final and complete so that we can live our whole lives as worship. All of these things the preacher has worked through in order to give us all the parts that go into making that whole statement about the sufficiency and superiority of Jesus stand as solid truth. So so we have this whole thing. Jesus is the great revealer and final revealer of, of God's salvation purposes. And then we have all the parts that show how that truth works out. All those things we need to know as the preacher goes back through the Old Testament and expounds those various scriptures along the way. Here's who Jesus is. And then we get to, I've been, been listening to the, to the uh, and now we come to this prayer of blessing for those who have, who have uh, been, been listening to the, to the uh, preacher's exhortations. And in this prayer, there's a sense in which we get back to the whole thing again, whole part whole. And in, in this prayer, the preacher brings together again all the grandness of the truth that's been worked out throughout the letter, and he gives us this whole picture view of the purposes of God that have been, that have been affected through Jesus Christ. So, so this prayer, we, we not only are receiving a, a clear understanding of the preacher's gospel desire for this congregation. We, we get his petition and the things he's longing that would, that would take place in their lives. He's appealing to God for things. And then also in this prayer, we're renewed in a kind of broad and, and sweeping instructional moment where a whole big picture view of what's true about God's work through Christ is set before us again. This whole part whole uh, kind of comes to a, a climactic high here as the preacher recounts the significance of what God has accomplished through Jesus Christ. And as we think about this, uh, very simply, this means that these verses can be a great encouragement to us because, because what do we need more than anything else but to be brought back to the basics of the significance of who Jesus is? What do we need more than anything else but to be reminded of the fact that God has worked through Christ to bring about this salvation from sin that we need. It's affected perfectly. It's affected climactically. And so in this prayer, we have a wonderful, uh, we have a wonderful expression of these high gospel truths as they're now taken up as a petition before God and with a desire to have all of that grace that's been going on in the book of Hebrews applied to these believers' lives in order that they can live in a way that reflects the realities of Christ for them. So, so in a sense, as we get into studying this, and there's, and there's some, uh, some parts where we're going to have to think well, there's some things to think through clearly here, but in a sense, what's here is a, is a, is a whole basic picture of what it means to think about all the truth that's been going on in Hebrews. Jesus is supreme, and the preacher works all that out in all the ways, and now he's back again to the end, praying based on that supremacy of Christ. And so we're going to think about the text from that perspective today, recognizing that we have this whole picture. This is, this is a, a prayer of blessing. It's a benediction, uh, but it's whole and very big truths about what, what God has done through Jesus. And so uh, we're going to focus our attention uh, on, this, on these two verses, verse 20 and 21. If you haven't turned there, you can. Um, we're going to focus our attention 
uh, by using three words as we go, just to help, help uh, mark off our study. And the first word that we'll think about is the word uh, invocation. Invocation. And uh, that word is just really a fancy word uh, to, to speak of a, of a prayerful appeal to God. That's what an invocation is, a prayerful appeal to God. And uh, we see how the preacher's making this request to God here. He's making a request on behalf of this church. And, uh, and it is noteworthy that, that, that he's just spent the last section asking these believers to be praying for him and for the other leaders in the church. In fact, we spent two weeks on, those, on that last section where the preacher is, is asking that he would be prayed for, that leaders in this congregation would be prayed for, that the preacher recognizes his own need for prayers to be offered up for his own faithfulness. And, and as is often the case, it's, it's those who really recognize their own need for prayer who are often the most fervent prayers for others, aren't they? This is, this is usually how it goes. And so what's happening now, but the preacher exercises himself in a ministry of prayer for these believers. He's asked them, pray for me, pray for us as we lead, and now he in turn is praying for them, and, and which comes to us, first of all, in this, in this invocation where he makes a request to God and saying, may the God of peace. May the God of peace. It's a, it's a request. And then we notice that this request doesn't, doesn't actually materialize until verse 21 where he, he's asking God to equip these believers and so on, which we'll, we'll think about here in just a moment. Um, but, but here, as the preacher begins his prayer, we can notice how he's initially making this appeal. He's, he's making his petition to the God of peace. The God of peace. Um, now, now, just to begin with, because this is important to think about, especially as we have... Uh, references to God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit all throughout the book of Hebrews, uh, we can understand to begin with here that he is praying to God the Father. Uh, often in the New Testament when we have uh, the, the general term for God, it's a reference to God the Father. So, uh, for example, you might remember the end of 2 Corinthians where Paul uh, offers that benediction for the believers there. And, and what does he say? He says, may the, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. It's a, it's a Trinitarian formula um, where God there is, God the Father is just referred to God. It's a typical New Testament pattern in prayer, uh, knowing that while God exists, one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, uh, there's a distinction that's made in function, as we see in, in many places and as we see here, especially where God the Father is accomplishing redemption through the work of God the Son. So, so the preacher is appealing to God the Father here, and that's uh, just a, a, an important thing to notice. And, and he appeals to God the Father, but he, he addresses God as the God of peace. The God of peace. Uh, which is interesting because uh, the last direct reference he had to God, uh, he referred to God as a consuming fire. Now God is a God of peace. Um, peace is a subject that's been referred to three times in Hebrews. Um, we can maybe think of Hebrews 12, verse 14. You might remember that where the Christians there, they're exhorted to pursue peace with everyone. Pursue peace with everyone. Uh, or back in, in Hebrews eleven thirty one, we have Rahab's example of faith. You remember that? And, and we're told there in that section that Rahab, um, uh, Rahab gave the spies a friendly welcome, is how it's translated in the, in the CSB here. It's actually, she gave the spies a peaceful welcome. There in the text. So, so, so more towards the end of Hebrews there, this idea of peace has been attached to the, to the ethic of the faith-filled community. 
It's the quality of, of pursuing harmonious relationships with others. And that's how peace has, has been worked out in terms of the people's living out of their lives of faith. It's this engagement with others in a harmonious kind of way insofar as they're able. Uh, but in Hebrews, the call to peace isn't merely a, a moral call to live in a certain way toward others. It's not grounded in a, in a mere temporal ethic because it helps life go better. Uh, in fact, for the first hearers of Hebrews, they didn't experience much peace at all. We know that because back in chapter 10, we were told how friends had been put into prison, had property confiscated, they endured public ridicule. Uh, peace with others would have been difficult for these believers. They, they, they weren't called to strive for inter, interpersonal peace with those who they might engage with in a world that was contrary to Christ. They weren't called to this just for the mere sake of, of expressing a, an ethic that seemed like a good idea at the time or, or something of that nature. Instead, they were called to this peace-directed life because before peace is something that's prompted in them, uh, peace is something that's actually been provided for these believers. And that's what we learn from the book of Hebrews because it's, it's not a mere interpersonal, earthly, temporal kind of peace that's been provided for these Christians, but instead, instead there's this transcendent peace that's come. And we get this earlier back in Hebrews chapter 7 where we have that seemingly strange reference to Melchizedek, if you remember that. Melchizedek uh, is, is that character who the preacher described as the king of Salem, which he then goes on to translate for us, is, it means the king of peace. So that Melchizedek figure from, from back in the narrative of Abraham's life, where Abraham paid that tithe to Melchizedek, he was the king of peace. And in all that, uh, if we can remember back to our studies in chapter 7, uh, we can note how the preacher of Hebrews was making the point that Melchizedek's character was pointing forward to the better kingly and priestly office of Jesus Christ. Because through Christ, true peace would finally be effected. Jesus' priestly work was of a different order than the Levitical priest that would come later in Moses. Jesus was more like Melchizedek. That's where that connection was made. And that he didn't have a priestly calling associated with the Mosaic law, but he existed outside of that. And outside of that, in that new priestly order... Jesus did the climactic work to finally pay for salvation that could never ultimately be affected under the Mosaic law and the, and the framework of the priestly order in that old covenant system. Je Jesus was the better Melchizedek in that he, he came in from the outside, as it were, and he offered the final sacrifice which reconciled us to God, paying for our sins. So Jesus is this climactic king, priest, who brings us peace. And, and with that in mind, uh, we, we can recognize then God is being referred to here in Hebrews that not just as, as the terrifying judge and consuming fire and these kinds of things, but with that in mind, we recognize that as the preacher to Hebrews goes to God in prayer, he references the fact that he's not going to the one who is bent on condemnation and who is bent on, on refusing to listen to those who are wayward and far from God, but instead the preacher, as he's communicated all this truth about what Jesus has done, he goes to this one who's made a way for us through Jesus Christ. This is the God of peace who's opened up communion with himself now because Jesus has provided that living way to him. We're no longer at enmity with God, but instead we're reconciled to him and and so we pray. And how do we pray? Well, we appeal to this God of peace, the one who's made a way for us to approach his throne of grace like Hebrews 4 spoke about. 
So, so we come to this God who's extending reconciling kindness that we didn't deserve, but he's given that reconciling kindness to us through Jesus. We're now his children, which of course is why when Jesus instructs his disciples to pray, how does he instruct them to pray? Our Father. Our Father because God has brought us in. He's brought us in. So, so I wonder, and I was, I was checking myself uh, this week just by the text here, and I wonder if when you pray, you pray to the God of peace. It's interesting to think about our prayer, isn't it, and how uh, so often it can be influenced by those who have prayed around us in our seasons of prayer growing up or whatever it might be. Uh, prayer can be influenced by so many things. Sometimes we don't even think about the words we use, but, but there is a sense in which we can go to God, and there is something about God that's, that, that's uh, paramount in our minds as we go to Him. Maybe we go to Him uh, feeling a sense of, of guilt and shame or whatever that might be at the time, and we go to Him, but we feel like we're going to the God of judgment. Or maybe we can go to God and we feel like He's distant and He's not hearing us. And we feel like we're going to this God of great space from us. He's just not hearing my prayer. Like the psalmist in Psalm 77, it just seems like God is gone. But when we go to God, we can be trained by a passage like this to go to God as the God of peace. To appeal to Him as the God of peace. God, I come to you as the one who is the one who brings eternal peace. And, and for these believers... Remember the original context of, of Hebrews. These believers were having a hard time. They were struggling with a cultural context that was against them because they were trusting in Jesus. They felt pressure under that, so much so that, as we know, they were tempted to go back from Christ. This is a little easier culturally over here to just go back to, to traditional Judaism. They were tempted to go back from Christ because of the tumult of their religious life and culture around them. But what a wonderful instructional example is, uh, is here in terms of how to go to God when the pressure is on. Because when the pressure is on, we can often go to God in many ways that reflect anything but peace. It can re reflect the chaos of our own heart, the discontentedness with our own heart, all of those kinds of things. But here, what does He do? God of peace. I'm struggling with temptations that pull me away, to, uh, away from Christ. God of peace, please help me. God of peace, I'm struggling with discouragement and, and a lack of zeal for the way of the gospel. God of peace, please be my help. Sin seemed to be tangling up. Please forgive me and bring me relief, God of peace. God of peace, I see a world around that's just so overwhelming as it's full of grief and sorrow and pain and all of these things. Things seem so hopeless around me. God of peace, bring reconciliation. Bring the help we need. It's a wonderful way to pray, especially when things can seem so tumultuous in our own hearts, just as they're certainly so tumultuous in the world around us. God of peace, would you come and be our helper? And so it's a wonderful reminder here, just in the way the preacher is addressing God. He knows that God has demonstrated through the work of His Son, God has proven that He is not a God who delights in lostness and chaos and the folly of lives made crooked with sin and all of these things. God is not a delighter in discord and chaos. Instead, He's shown Himself to be the God who would give His own Son even all the way to death in order to bring reconciliation. He is the God of peace. And so that can be an encouragement to us. We start with this invocation in the, in the first part of verse 20. This is the God of peace. And then uh, in the second part of the verse, we move from invocation to what we'll call uh, realization. Realization. Uh, in, in his prayer, the preacher now directly references the work of God as it's realized in Jesus Christ. The work of God as it's realized in Jesus Christ. So, to put it another, another way, we can call on God as the God of peace, 
because of what he's accomplished through Jesus, which we've already noted, but we can see how things are worked out here. Um, the, the preacher knows that we can go to God on account of what has been accomplished uh, because of Jesus, and he does recount that in prayer, which is just something that we should note in terms of a pattern for praying. It, it, it's a wonderful picture given here of pleading God's own truth before his throne as he comes to him in prayer. O oh God, the one who brought up from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, and then on with his request he goes. He comes before God, recounting before God the significance of God's own work. He's pleading God's truth on, the, on behalf of these people whom God has promised to extend that truth to. And, and so that's just a, a wonderful example of prayer that's here. Um, but, but let's think here a, b- a bit about what he says with regard to what God has done through Jesus. So, so the, the preacher puts things together in a significant uh, way here. It's a whole bunch of truth really in this short statement uh, where he appeals to God as the one who brought up from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant. Um, now, now, at first it can seem like he's, he's stringing three different thoughts together here. You know, we've preached through Hebrews a whole bunch. We've worked through the book. Let me pull out just three big things I'd like to list out as, as I come before God in prayer, which isn't bad to do at all. Uh, but, but it does seem like at first he's kind of stringing three different things together where, 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 where Jesus was resurrected. You know, God brought up from the dead our Lord Jesus. He was resurrected. Jesus is our good shepherd. That's something that's true as well. He leads his people. And, and Jesus purchased the new covenant. So all those promises from Jeremiah, and then they were recounted in Hebrews chapter 8. Jesus purchased that. So we have those three things that the preacher seems to be bringing in. But, but it does help us to know that, again, when we have the whole piece being put together here at the end of Hebrews, the preacher's not bringing these three, three things together in a kind of big list sort of way. Instead, he's bringing things together with a particular focus, a particularly uh, thematic focus, if we could say it that way, uh, which centers on the fact that the better exodus from sin's bondage is something that God has worked for us through Jesus. The better exodus from sin's bondage is what God has worked for us through Jesus, which I know you read the text on the surface level, a quick reading, and you're thinking, where in the world, how in the world would you get there from this passage? But what are we talking about here? But if we, if we were like this Greek audience, uh, this audience reading our Old Testament in Greek in the Septuagint, and then if we were hearing this preached or reading this letter first in Greek, we would notice something very strange that would cause us to trace down a study trail for, for a moment. And the thing we would notice that's strange is that the preacher doesn't use the normal Greek word for resurrection here. And, and there's a reason for that. Because the preacher is making a reference to a section from the Old Testament. It's, it's this brought up wording that's here. Uh, along with some other wording here that actually reflects a quote from the Greek translation of Isaiah chapter 63. And back in Isaiah chapter 63, we have a reference there to Moses as the shepherd of God's flock. You're noticing these themes coming together. Moses is the shepherd of God's flock. And the Lord speaks of bringing his people up from the Red Sea. That's the same kind of strange wording that we find here where Jesus was brought up from the dead. God brought up his people from the Red Sea. And and back in Isaiah, we we see that it was God bringing them up from the sea uh, through Moses' shepherding care. So we have him recounting that that Exodus narrative where the people are saved as the Red Sea was parted and then came collapsing back down on the the, uh, Egyptian soldiers. Uh, But now we get here in Hebrews and the preacher is referencing the fact that God the Father brought up Jesus from the dead. 
So we have that same kind of exodus motif here. God brought up Jesus from the dead as what? Well, as the great shepherd of the sheep. He's the, the, the better leader than Moses, which has already been a theme that was developed back in chapter 3. So, so, so Jesus has been brought up not through the water of the sea, but he's actually been brought up through the blood of the everlasting covenant. So, so through Moses, God led the people of Israel in an exodus from Egyptian slavery, having been brought up from the sea. Through Jesus, God has led his people through a more climactic exodus, and that we have had this climactic exodus from the bondage of death that's displayed in Jesus' resurrection itself. And, and so just for our own thinking here, again, this brings us back to some significant basics. But we remember that right at the center of humanity's need is something that humanity can never actually deal with. We're bound. We, we as humanity do not ultimately have an education problem, do we? We, we as humanity do not ultimately have a social services problem. We do not ultimately have a political problem, a health care problem, an economic problem, a job problem, a housing market problem. We as humanity ultimately have a bondage to sin problem. We've gone against the good way of God. There's no hope in ourselves for any chance of release from the miry bog of sin's destruction and and. and despair and ultimately the judgment that comes with that death is the curse of sin leading us ultimately to judgment under God because God is just we violated his way that he's called us to live in fact we violated God himself and his holy goodness as rebelling against him as his creatures and death is the penalty for sin and we're bound in it everybody dies however God in his kindness did not leave us in our estate of sin and misery, to quote the Westminster Shorter Catechism. But what did he do? Well, he sent a redeemer. He sent a rescuer. He sent Jesus, who, who purchased the curse-reversing gift of life for us by offering his own body as an acceptable payment for our sin. Jesus became fully human, and in so doing, he identified with us. Jesus was fully God, and being fully God, he could bear the full weight of God's judgment upon us. Jesus' blood bought this ultimate exodus from the bondage of sin and death for it, which his resurrection proves. Because he lived, we sang it last week, if I remember right, because he lives, we can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because he lives, I know the future. Why is that? Because my Redeemer lives. He's carried me, he's carried us through this grander exodus. It's not an exodus from the bondage of Egypt and slavery there. It is the exodus from the bondage of sin and death that ultimately will hold us down under the judgment of God for all eternity. Jesus is the one who has brought us from fearing God as the consuming fire to knowing God as the one who, who, who has prepared this eternal and future heavenly city for us to dwell in. Through Jesus' blood which is the only sufficient payment for sin. We've seen that in Hebrews. The blood of bulls and goats, the sacrificial system, none of that could handle our sin. Through Jesus' blood, the promise of the new covenant was obtained for us. That new covenant, which we know is God's eternal promise to us, has right at the very center that glorious statement from God Himself, I will remember their sins no more. Why? Because of what Jesus has done. Because his death has affected this reverse of the curse in that sense. And now life is offered to us. And it's proved victorious in Jesus' own resurrection. There's been a better exodus. released from the bondage of death. This is the work of God realized in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the better shepherd. He leads us to a better rest. And ultimately this life is ours. 
And, and so this element of the preacher's prayer, it, it's so helpful for us as well because, because we come before God as the God of peace, certainly in the midst of a world full of chaos. But, but then we also come to God and confess before Him that, that it, is, it, is, it is my great rest that my place has been secured by Jesus' victory and nothing that I have done in and of, of myself. We can come before God in, in prayer and say things like, I'm going to base my requests not on what I have done, O oh Lord, but on what Jesus has purchased for me. I'm going to place my eternal hope, not on anything I have done, but upon what Jesus has purchased for me. He's the one who's ultimately accomplished all of these things. And so, God, as I pray, hear my prayer, not because of my weak, but because of Christ's sufficiency. So, so the hymn writer, he captures it. Horatius Bonar wrote this hymn, and it captures, it captures things so well. I'm just going to read you the first two verses. It goes like this. You maybe you know it, it's very old, but not what my hands have done can save my guilty soul. Okay, that's true. Not what my hands have done can save this guilty soul. Not what my toiling flesh has borne can make my spirit whole. Not what I feel or do can give me peace with God. Not all my prayers and sighs and tears can bear my awful load. It's very honest, it's very true. And then he says this, Thy work alone, O Christ, can ease this weight of sin. Thy blood alone, O Lamb of God, can give me peace within. Now listen to this. Thy love to me, O God, not mine, O Lord, to thee. Thy, hear that again. Thy love to me, O God, not mine, O Lord, to thee, can rid me of this dark unrest and set my spirit free. What frees us? The love of God extended to us in Jesus Christ. Not the works our hands have done. The love of God extended to us in Jesus Christ. And so the preacher, as he's about to pray for these believers to live in a way that reflects all the gospel truth that's here, what is he doing but appealing to the God who's purchased freedom to walk in this way of life? He's acknowledging that before God. I'm appealing to you, O Lord, as the one who has sent Jesus to bring us through this exodus from sin into the way of eternal life. And so, and so that's where we have that realization. First, there's this invocation, may the God of peace. And then we have this realization. God's work of salvation is realized through Jesus and Jesus alone. And he frees us. The, the grip of death is gone. Jesus went up from the grave. And on that final day, we will go up from the grave. Death doesn't win. We're free. Which leads us then to, to the last part of this prayer, which we'll think about under the heading application. Uh, application. So we've had invocation, realization, and now the application of God's work in Christ for these believers, which really gets us right to the center of the, of the, of the request that this preacher is making. Uh, the main request is now clear as, as he gets here. So, so just listen to the end of this uh, in verse 21. Um, if we start there, may the God of peace, well, what, what may God do? What's his request? Equip you with everything good to do his will, working in us what is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen is just the Greek word meaning this is true. This is true. So in interestingly, uh, the, the word translated equip there is, is also used in Hebrews a couple times. Um, and it, it's used first of all in chapter 11 verse 3. I guess actually it's the second time it's used. Chapter 11 verse 3 to talk about how God fashioned the created order. How God fashioned the, the world. God equipped the world when he made it. Is Hebrews 11, verse 3. And then, really more significantly, this word is used to describe how God equipped His Son with a body through which He could do the will of God. That's chapter 10, verses 5 to 7. 
So, so, so this equip word here is it's used not just in reference to God fitting out creation, but it's also used in reference to the incarnation, to the reality that Jesus took humanity to himself to fulfill God's will. God fit his son with humanity to do that. And, and now here, it's, it's the same kind of, of extraordinary equipping power that the preacher is praying for on behalf of these believers. It's really quite the connection, isn't it? He's, he's praying that, that, that God's creation and incarnation power would be applied to these believers in order that, like Jesus, they could do God's will. They could walk and equip them with everything good to do your will, O Lord, he says. And, and we know about the equipment that the preacher is praying for here. He's praying for everything good, he says. Well, what is everything good? As we think back all through Hebrews, well, everything good is everything good that Christ has purchased for us. All these benefits that are ours in Christ. This is the good, the new covenant heart that desires to do the will of God, just like we read about in chapter 8. That's a good thing that comes from God. The clean conscience before God that allows us to worship in purity. The the grace of the living and active word in the scriptures through which God speaks to us about about persevering, encouragement, and corrects us, and all of those things. The discernment we need to decide between truth and error in teaching. All of these things, this is the good equipment we need. And the preacher prays that we would receive these things so that we could do the will of God. Well, what's the will of God? That's a $10,000 question, isn't it? What is the will of God for my life? On the one hand, it is such a, such a, a big question to ask, but on the other hand, it's not really that complicated. The will of God is everything that chapter 13 has been about. This is why Jesus has saved us. That the will of God is that we'd engage in the equipment God gives us and live a whole life of worship. This is the will of God for us, brotherly love, Extending hospitality, remembering persecuted Christians, sexual fidelity in the realm of marriage, satisfaction in the realm of money, belief in right teaching, following righteous examples, praying for leaders. This is the will of God for our life. And we walk in that will with this equipment purchased for us by Jesus, which includes the provision of God's sustaining work in us so that we can please Him, just like we read in the middle of this verse. Work in us what is pleasing in your sight. This is that fitment that God is going to bring to our lives. Work in us what is pleasing in your sight. Now, we can just really quickly notice that things do shift here a bit. The, the preacher was praying for the people. Did you notice that? May God equip you. And now now he actually starts to include himself again. He starts to feel his own need for this, even as he's praying about it. Working in what? You? No. Working in us. This is what we need. We need God to work in us what is pleasing in his sight. So the commentator Westcott, he, he he makes the statement, the work of God makes our work possible. The work of God makes our work possible. This, this life of pleasing God, it is not a life we live under our own power. And, and it's not bad just to stop there for a moment and, and, and ask ourselves the question under this text, have I been? <laughs> have I been seeking to live a life that honors God under, under my own steam? Have I, been, have I been trying to do the best I can uh, with what I've got, not really dependent upon God, but seeking maybe to prove myself righteous before God? Have I been spending more time in, in a posture of self-reliance rather than, than appealing for help? From the God who, who equipped the created order, who equipped Christ, who equips us. It's very easy to do. We fall into these patterns. Self-reliance. What One way to tell if, if self-reliance is creeping in is that often when, when, when we get into those modes, uh, the good that comes from Christ starts to fade. It starts to fade from our mind. And one of the first things that begins to creep back in is renewed guilt. 
You just know this is how this is how this works. Renewed guilt before God is very often an indicator of a renewed attempt at pleasing God under my own power. And why would that be the case? Oh, because pleasing God under my own power does make me guilty. I can't do it. I don't have I don't have the capacity for that. I, I can't be my own savior. That's just what this text has been about. Jesus is my shepherd who brings me out of all of that. And then says we can just we can just take a moment and think to ourselves, am, am I am I seeking to serve God under my own equipment or am I seeking to be dependent upon God for the equipment he provides to live this life of worship and service before him? And that adjustment, it doesn't come just from getting down on our knees one Sunday afternoon and saying, I'll do better, Lord. It doesn't come that way. It comes as we say before God, I'm weak, but you're, you're the God of peace. I feel chaotic in my own heart, but you're the God who comes and brings me rest. Please equip me. Please work the good in me that Jesus has purchased for me so that I can please you. This is my desire. This is my new covenant desire. I want to please the Lord. That's one way you know you're a Christian. If way down deep in your heart when the question comes to you, what do you want most of all in life? And if your answer is, I want to please Jesus, that's what I want. I want more than anything else on the final day for him to say to me, well done, my good and faithful servant. That's one of the most helpful ways to have assurance of your own faith. Deep down, our new hearts, up and down and all around as we go, we want to please the Lord who saves and so we desire to bring, uh, to bring Him glory, just as the text ends here. We desire to bring glory to God or to Christ. You can't quite tell what the direct reference is there in the end, where, where, he, where he refers to, uh, uh, glory, to, him, to whom be glory forever and ever. Is it to Jesus Christ? Is it to God the Father? It's probably both. To whom be glory forever and ever. We desire to bring glory forever and ever to the God who ultimately saves us. And for that task, we need His help. We recognize that. And so, and so we have all this in our minds and we see how the preacher brings things back around to a whole picture of what's ours because of Jesus. God in Christ brings us peace. He, he rescues us from the bondage of sin and death and he empowers us to live according to the new life that Jesus gives. And it is because of this, it's, 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 it's for all of this that we pray these kinds of prayers. So let's just hear it again. Now may the God of peace who brought up from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, what? Equip you, fit you out with everything good to do his will, working in us what is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. This is true. Let's pray. So, Father, we ask that we would have a prayerful posture as exemplified in this text, a dependent posture. And Father, we would ask that you would equip us to do your will. It is our desire to serve you because you've saved us. We're thankful that we're not uh, climbing a ladder to earn your salvation, but you've granted it to us. And now we in turn want to live in response to that. Please help us do that. And, and we know that's not something we can accomplish on our own, but it's something you, uh, you work in us. And we need that strength worked in, worked in us. So please, uh, for the sake of Christ, do this work and bring us along in your way. Amen.